Welcome to Real Life. Hi, I'm Jim Miller, and you're listening to the Real Life LA podcast, coming to you from multiple locations in the San Gabriel Valley of sunny Southern California. We're a church for everyone, and we exist to lead people to Jesus, a community of grace with a God-sized vision that reaches from generation to generation. As you hear today's message, we pray that God speaks specifically to you and opens your heart and inspires you to live each day with more joy, beauty, and wonder. Good morning. It is good to be with you today. I'm Anthony. I'm one of the pastors here at Real Life. Whether you are in the room today or uh, you are watching me on a screen, it is great to be with you both uh, physically and digitally. Uh, You might know this, you might not know this, but today is the first day that some core volunteers and also just you know, some people from the church who feel very pioneery are over at our Glendora campus giving everything a test run to make sure it is ready for next week. Can we just take a moment and say thank you to those of you who are at Glendora. Uh, we are excited for what God is going to be doing in your midst. And thank you for being the guinea pigs today to make sure all the technology works and everything is good to go. If you are seeing me right now, the technology works, which is great. Uh, I, I actually, though, want to start today with a question uh, for those of you in the room and for those of you not. Uh, and it, it might seem a little out there, but I promise it leads somewhere. I'm curious, show of hands, who here has ever been skydiving before? Ever been, been skydiving? A couple? Yep. Okay. Mental note, you're not going to work in kids ministry, right? No crazy people. Just kidding. I, my hand would be up as well. Uh, I, I too have been skydiving. In fact, early on in college, you know, that season of life where, uh, Young adults are known for making the best and wisest decisions, right? Uh, when I was in uh, college, a friend of mine, a buddy of mine who I worked with, invited me to go skydiving. I'd recently moved back home to attend community college. I'd been engaged, and uh, the, the young lady I was engaged to called off the, the wedding. And so I was just pouring myself into work. I was working four jobs at the time. I interned in youth ministry at my local church. I worked for a pizza restaurant. I was the assistant manager there. I can, I can toss a good pizza. I learned how to do that one there. I worked uh, maintenance for our local UPS. Uh, we had four UPS trucks. I was the maintenance guy for those trucks in our little town. Uh, and then I also worked with this friend of mine at a furniture store uh, delivering furniture. We were furniture delivery guys. And he wanted to give me kind of this this jolt to get me out of this funk I was in. The words I would now use, you know, I'm, I'm older now. I have a good sense. I was in a season of depression. I didn't know that that's what that was at the time, but my buddy wanted to help me out. He wanted to give me a jolt, wanted to give me something to look forward to, and invited me to go skydiving with him. He called this skydiving place a couple hours out of town and made reservations for us. Now, in hindsight, uh, and just a pro tip to anybody who's, you know, going through life with somebody who's, who's down, who's in a hard spot, uh, encouraging them to jump out of a plane might not be the best move, but, you know, we were in college, and it seemed like one of those things you do when you're young and your heart is broken, you go jump out of a plane. And so we got in the car, and we drove. I remember pulling up to the airport and wondering, but wait, where is the airport? This place was small, like two buildings small, one runway. And as we're pulling in, this large man comes walking out of the building. He has an even larger, like, Hawaiian print shirt on. And that shirt actually looked small in contrast to this, like, really thick mustache he had. Like, 
Mario the video game plumber kind of mustache. This thing is big. And he was so excited that we pulled up. Not only did he run the local airport, but he was the owner operator of the skydiving school and was going to be our instructor for the day. Uh, Forrest and I were the two guys signed up and he was excited to have us there. As we walked into the building, uh, he asked us if we'd ever been skydiving before. We hadn't. So he told us there's this video we were going to watch, like an orientation. And he goes, ah, or you could just sign this piece of paper saying you watched it and we can keep going. And if you have ever been skydiving before, some of you have, uh, you probably watched an orientation video. Not this guy. Like I, I signed the paper. I went, I put on the jumpsuit. We started walking onto the tarmac. And up to that point, you know, adrenaline had kind of carried me through this arrival until I saw the plane. And the plane looked small. And I was the one who was going to go first. And I looked at this plane and looked at the instructor. He's a very large guy. And his wife was going to be the videographer. I looked at her and the pilot. And I'm going, how do the four of us get into that little plane? I don't know how this is going to go. But we got over there and we scooted in. And we were strapped together, me and my instructor. And the plane was up in the air. And there's this feeling that happens when you're in an airplane and the door opens. Uh, the, the words you might use to describe that feeling would be, oh no, something has gone terribly wrong. It doesn't feel natural and it shouldn't feel natural and it is uh, a crazy experience. And as that happens and uh, my skydiving instructor begins, you know, kind of scooting me towards the, the side, skydiving went from this idea I had to this very real and very scary thing. And the engine slowed down. And all of a sudden, my legs are hanging out the door. After the, the instructor's wife, she's already climbed out. She's now hanging on to the wing of the plane, ready for us to go. And as I scoot, I panic. And I got this death grip on the sides of the door. And I would not let go. Now, the large man with that large mustache who's strapped onto me, he doesn't panic at the time, or at least he doesn't visibly. He, he just leans over and asks me the simple question, do you trust me? Now, I imagine he was actually probably a little bit panicked, right? Because at this point, the engine's been cut and the, the plane is cresting. His wife is holding onto the wing of the plane, waiting for this like young guy to, to let go of this death grip I have on the door. But he just simply asked, do you trust me? And there are times in our lives where I think God is asking us a similar question. He's asking us to let go of something. We might be holding on to it tightly. And his question to us is simply, do you trust me? And, and maybe you've felt that before. Maybe you've uh, had that experience. Maybe you're in that experience right now. Or maybe today you may hear something from God's word that causes you to consider letting go but you hold on tight. And God's question for you today might be, do you trust me? And today I want to spend some time reading a story from the Old Testament that I think can help speak into times in our lives where uh, we want to hold on tightly to things. Today we're going to read from the first chapter of the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. The book narrates the rise and the reign of David as he becomes king over Israel. Now David lived hundreds of years before Jesus. But he also lived long after a guy from the Old Testament we know of by the name Moses. So David is kind of between those two key figures, if you're wondering where in the biblical narrative 
David is. And during David's rise and reign, there was a prophet named Samuel. And Samuel had a mom. Her name was Hannah. And we don't actually know a lot about Hannah. The Bible doesn't say too much about her life, but what it does say is powerful. And I think it can teach us something about what it means to let go and to trust God. So here's how the author of 1 Samuel describes Hannah. In 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1, there was a certain man from Remathame, a Zephite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of a name, son of a name, son of a name, son of a name. They're all Ephraimites. And you can read those names. I'm not going to do it into a microphone in front of people who are probably much smarter than me, but those were the, the dad, the grandpa, the great-grandpa of this man. And he had, verse 2 says, two wives. One was called Hannah, and the other was Panina. Panina had children, but Hannah had none. Hannah was childless. That's what we're told about her. That is what defines her. That's what orients her into this story. And, and in that culture and in that time, that was a defining thing for a woman. They were defined by their ability to give birth to and then raise children. The story might as well just begin with, there was once a man who had two wives. One had worth and one was worthless in that culture. And the story continues, verse 3. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he'd give portions of the meat to his wife, Panina, and to all of her sons, plural, and daughters, plural. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. Because the Lord had closed Hannah's womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her until she wept and she would not eat. Her husband, Elkanah, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, it's, it's hard to imagine that it was only on their trips to the temple uh, that Hannah had been provoked to tears by her rival. And, and my question for you is, have you been there? Do you know that person? They know exactly what to say to get under your skin, to mess with your identity. Hannah lived that experience. And, and this is a very like husbandy response that we see here to try to throw logic at a feelings. Uh, if you've ever felt like life doesn't matter, if you've ever felt worthless, if you've ever watched people receive what you wanted most, then Hannah's experience is one that you know well. And then here's her husband. But at least you have me, right? It says the guy who has two wives. Well played, Elkanah. Now what happens next feels like it should be the end of the story. But it actually just sets up the punchline. Read along with me, verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord, weeping bitterly. And she made a vow saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I'll give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. No razor will ever be used on his head. 
And as she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Remember, that's the priest who's there. Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. Uh, a side note, I, I really like parts of the Bible that have like odd moments like this. The author in no way needs to include that piece, but they did, which tells me that it's probably exactly what happened. Verse 15, not so, my Lord, Hannah replied. I'm a woman who's deeply troubled. I've not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, go in peace. May the God of Israel grant you what you've asked of him. And she said, may your servant find favor in your eyes. And then she went on her way and she ate something and her face was no longer downcast. Early the next morning, they arose and they worshiped before the Lord and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So here's Hannah. She, she yearns for a son. She prays for a son. And she receives a son. And we like stories in three acts. There's a setup. There's some kind of problem or conflict. And then there's resolution. Yet, after receiving the one thing that Hannah has ever wanted, she shows us what it's like to let go. Verse 21, when her husband Elkanah went up with his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord. He will live there always. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here till you've weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she'd weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, Pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I'm the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child. The Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life. He'll be given over to the Lord. And he, Samuel, worshiped the Lord there. Now, Hannah's story is counterintuitive. The one thing she wanted, the only thing that she prayed for, it's the one thing that she was willing to let go of in her faithfulness to God. So what could that tell us about what it means for us to let go of the things we want most, the things that we have worked hardest for? the things that our world around us uses to define us. When we hold on tightly to things, God's question to us is often, do you trust me? And then he asks us to let that thing go. And when my kids were younger, they're older now, but when they were younger, we used to take them to local parks to go play. And after a while, I noticed an interesting thing happening when we would meet other parents or grown-ups at those parks and the kids were playing. If I were flying solo and I was just kind of on my own at the park, uh, people would start up a conversation often by asking me what I did for a living. You know, it was an easy on-road into, on-ramp into uh, small talk, right, and conversation. Little did they know that I would then say, I'm a pastor, which would confuse a lot of them because they'd hear pastor and they would think priest and they'd see that I had kids and wonder what's going on here. It was actually a more complicated conversation than they thought they were stepping into. 
But I contrast that with when Christine was with me, when my wife was with me, and people would shift. They'd ask us about our kids, about how many we had, about how old they were, about the things they would do for fun. As a dad, people wanted to know about the career I had. But with a mom beside me, people shifted. They wanted to know about our identity as parents. And just because people try to make small talk out of uh, things like this at parks, it does not mean that those are the things that have to define us. However, if you are asked the same question enough times and have to give the same answer enough times, it is hard to avoid integrating that answer into your sense of who you are. You can ask any graduating high school senior, begin talking to them about the colleges they're thinking about going to or they've applied to, and for so many of them, that answer has come to define them. Or ask a newly married couple about their plan to have kids. And that's one of the first things people jump to. And the way they answer that, it starts defining who they are in their community. And maybe you're past those seasons of life, and you might think you've moved beyond the questions that people ask that, that define you. But I think there are still things we say about ourselves and we think about ourselves that define who we are, that God might be asking us to let go of. And if you're not sure what it is that you use to define you, I'm going to teach you a question you can ask yourself to help you get there. It's not an easy question. In fact, it could be a scary one. It's a question you can ask if you're a Christian or if you just got dragged to church today by somebody who wants you to be one. It's simply this. What do I have that would be the hardest to lose? Another question that you could ask that could get you to a similar place would be, what do I have that I worked hardest for? For Hannah, the answer to both of those questions was her son, Samuel. Having a son was the one thing that gave her identity and worth in her community. Motherhood was her defining feature. We are this many years later, and she is remembered to this day by billions of people worldwide by her role as a mother. And yet she was willing to give her son to God to be a servant in the temple. And in a community like ours, there's a, there's a good chance that your identity, that our identity, that my identity is wrapped up in one of three things, either a relationship that you're in, a career path that you've chosen or are pursuing, or the way you express your belief in God. Today, I believe God is asking you and he's asking me to consider letting go of that thing that you find your identity in so you can experience life more fully. Now, I know you've been wondering, yeah, but like, 20-something years ago. Did he actually jump out of a plane? Did he just crawl back in? Like, what happened? Or maybe you walked in late past that part, and uh, you're going, wait, what? <laughs> I missed something? This guy was in a plane? What, what was going on? Uh, let me just catch you up to speed. You can listen to the podcast later, but here's a quick recap. I'm easily swayed by peer pressure, and so I once found myself in a, in a plane, a very tiny plane. Uh, I was over 14,000 feet in the air. The door is open. My feet are hanging out the side. Uh, the engine has been cut. There's this very large and mustachioed man strapped to my back so we could uh, parachute tandem. There's one parachute. There are two of us. This guy's wife is hanging on to the wing of the airplane because she's the videographer. And here we go. I, I was gripped to the sides of the door. I was convinced that there were dire consequences on the other side of letting go. And so my oversized instructor did two things. Number one, he asked me 
Do you trust me? And then incredibly gently, he, he took my head and he, he pulled it back into his shoulder. He said, let's go for a ride. And there's a chance that, you know, they teach you probably before you jump out of a plane, like how to breathe when you're at terminal velocity. But I didn't watch the video, so maybe, maybe they do teach you, maybe they don't. What I know is uh, I lost my breath. Uh, it took me a moment to figure out how to breathe differently. And I think that's how letting go works. It's a leap of faith, and then you learn to breathe differently. I don't suggest that you go skydiving anytime soon. I can't guarantee that your oversized Hawaiian shirt-wearing mustachioed instructor will be as good as mine was. But the feeling of flying through the air wiped away any care I had before that moment. Skydiving had moved from an idea to a, a fear and finally to a reality for me. And, and it was a reality that was more incredible than anything I could have ever imagined. Having been a Jesus follower for quite some time now, I think that the life he's calling us to is even more incredible. But it starts with letting go. Letting go of the things that define us most can be frightening, especially in light of Hannah's story as we read it in 1 Samuel. But I don't think it's as complicated as you might think it could be. It starts with a question that leads us to a life that's even greater than what we could have imagined. So I don't know what, what defines you. And if I had time today to sit down with everyone in the room, if I could drive across town to our Glendora campus and sit down with each of you, if I could knock on your door if you're watching online or listening to the podcast, we could probably make some headway to thinking through what are those things that your uh, identity is wrapped up in. We could start to tease some of that out. Whether, uh, you know, your identity is grounded in a relationship you're in or maybe your career trajectory or the way that you experience church. Whatever it is that you need to let go of, that thing that you are wrapped up in. Here's the question you just need to ask yourself. This is what letting go looks like. You ask, how can I use this thing for God's glory instead of my own? Now, if you find your identity in a relationship, the shift God might be asking you to make is to use that relationship to lead more people to knowing God's great love for them. Parents, when your child is the focus of your family's life, whether they are young or they have launched and they are now young adults, uh, you turn them into an idol, and that's actually not healthy for them. When you look at your calendar, if the immovable objects are sports events or practices, if they're school activities or other kid-focused activities, God might be asking you to leverage those activities to teach other people about Jesus instead of making them all about your child's success. So what if your family was the family who is known for leading the all-team prayer before or after a game? What would it look like for your kid to be the one who's always inviting her friends to church events that she plays sports with? What if your family's involvement in sports was less about a future scholarship and more focused on teaching your child to be a missionary wherever God has placed them. They might still get a scholarship, but how much more incredible would it be if along the way they led their peers to Christ? Those of you who find your identities in marriage or in your dating relationships or in your friendships, what would it look like to let go of what that relationship means to you 
and decided how you could leverage that relationship to show those people how much God loves them. And Jesus showed us God's love through how he served others. And so what if in your relationship that defines you most, you began changing the question from what can this person do for me to how can I serve this person, especially in those moments when they probably deserve it the least? And if you find your identity in your career or in your educational path, God might be asking you to let go of your aspirations and leverage your network or your connections to help share the hope of the gospel with people in need of something better to chase after. What if when a high school senior was selecting a college, they first asked the question, what church do I want to be a part of? And they then looked for a university in that town. What if their degree pursuit was secondary to the church they wanted to get involved in and serve at? Or consider a person who's chased their career and making money in such a way that they never learned to be generous along the way. And that's the shift God is calling them to make. Or as you look toward retirement or as you're living in your post-career life, maybe God is asking you to use your newfound time to care for others instead of putting yourself first. What if retirement was the start of you using your life to serve others instead of a shift toward deciding that life is about your needs and your desires? Or it could be that your identity is most wrapped up in the way that you experience church. Now, your pastors at Real Life try to do a really good job of changing things enough that it's hard to make something sacred out of something that was never meant to be sacred. Yet when a church adds an additional service, uh, when they change the way that worship looks on a Sunday, when we add an additional location, hello Glendora, our gut reaction can be one of loss. What if I accidentally choose a service that's different than the one that my friends attend? What if I don't know the songs that we're singing on a Sunday? What if my friends help launch this new location, but I really like being in the room where the pastor is teaching live? But today as a church, we're leaning into letting go by launching a new campus in Glendora. If our Valley Center campus has become comfortable to you, God might be asking you to step out of your comfort zone and try inviting a friend to join us in Glendora. They're ready for you. They made it work today. It's going to work in the future, and we're so excited about that. Or maybe you're feeling the pull to begin serving at the campus you're attending because we need more people making church happen. And maybe that's the thing. God wants you to let go of just sitting in church and you get to embrace helping make it happen. We didn't pursue a second campus. We didn't go and purchase a second campus. God gave it to us. Our goal is not to become more famous as pastors. Instead, we want to invite more people into knowing God's great love for them. More locations means more seats, and more seats means you can invite more friends to join us in settings where they can feel known and needed. Today is a test run at Glendora, but next Sunday, we hope that everyone attending here today and attending there today invites a friend to come with them next week. And for many people following Jesus, it only ever exists as an idea. It's something that sounds good, but it only exists as a concept. When the door opens, and we're asked to give up something that matters most to us, it can become very real very quickly. Yet, holding on to things is not the model we see in the Bible, set by generations of people who gave up everything in pursuit of what God had for them. 
you and I get to have faith in the same God that Hannah had faith in. A God who sees our needs, who meets our needs, and a God who will give us more than we could ever hope for or imagine when we follow him. When you take the leap, it teaches you how to breathe differently. That's how letting go works. It's a leap of faith. And then you learn to do life in a radically new way. When you learn to let go, following Jesus moves from an idea to reality. And the reality is always more incredible than you could have ever imagined. But it starts with letting go. Are you ready? Would you pray with me? Uh, God, I ask that in this moment, you would bring to each of our minds, those of us in this room and those of us watching this message, that you'd bring to our mind the thing we need to let go of. And God, help us answer the question, how can we use that thing to serve you instead of serve ourselves? God, be with us this week. Help us change the world around us in your name. And it is in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us today. Now, will you help us welcome others to real life? Share our podcast or find us on Facebook or Instagram at Real Life LA. If you'd like to become a supporter, please visit reallife.la and tap give to help us welcome everyone to real life. God bless and have a wonderful day.